Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at stratacons.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AICons.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Jacob Ward. He is a Berggren Fellow at Stanford University. Jacob has an extensive background in journalism, mainly covering topics in science and technology at outlets like the National Geographic, Al Jazeera, Discovery Channel, BBC, Popular Science, and many others. Most recently, he's become interested in the interplay between research and psychology, decision-making, and AI systems. He is in the process of writing a book on these topics, and he was gracious enough to give an informal preview by way of this podcast conversation. And he also just gave an excellent keynote at Strata Data New York, and I will make sure to link to the video of his keynote in the blog post accompanying this conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Jacob Ward, currently uh, or soon to be a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Welcome to the Data Show. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. For our listeners out there, Jake is a journalist, former magazine editor, but he's not that far from our world because he edited Popular Science. So. Tell me about your work as a science journalist and how you ended up uh, becoming interested in artificial intelligence. Sure. I came up in an era when, you know, I considered sort of magazine journalism the kind of the cutting edge of great journalism. You know, it was sort of what I consider to be the most sort of thoughtful, good deep dives required a real command of a subject. And so I just grew up believing that's what that's what cool journalists did. My dad did it. Um, my, I have a whole sort of family of magazine people that I revere. And so I came up uh, doing that. I started out as a business reporter for a magazine called The Industry Standard. Some people may remember of from course, back yeah. in the day, right? And so uh, I was a reporter there at the tender age of 23 and then um, just sort of plowed ahead through uh, various postings in design journalism, business journalism, and then wound up at Popular Science. And I did about seven years there and eventually rose to be the editor-in-chief of Popular Science Magazine. It was the greatest job you could possibly have in, in magazines. I mean, it's just the most amazing subject. You know, every other magazine, uh, you know, when you when you work at like a men's magazine, let's say, I worked at a, a men's journal, for instance, then you're constantly getting these arguments at those magazines about whether you should cover this or that subject, you know, and, and it would always be these totally subjective criteria, you know, should you write about, you know, seersucker this season, you know, or which kind of skincare is better, or who's cool enough to put on the cover. But with science, you know, popular science, people would come in and say, you know, I've found somebody that has a, you know, a, a, a piece of equipment that can turn any blood type into any other blood type, you know, and you just go, yes, <laughs> there's no argument. You just say, that's amazing. Okay. And so for me, it was a tremendously satisfying gig. One of the things that one does at that magazine, the credo of that magazine was to go all in on the positive aspects of technology and the positive aspects of, of scientific breakthroughs. And so um, we sort of, you know, our sort of internal motto was that we left the sort of hand wringing to other people and instead we were much more about sort of solutions. 
And I inhabited that intellectual position really wholeheartedly for that period of time and, you know, lived and breathed it for the time that I was there. And then I decided I sort of had gotten this place in my life where I thought, you know, I feel like I've done everything I want to do in magazines. What do I do next? And I got hired to work at Al Jazeera. Um, they were starting an American channel, Al Jazeera America. By the way, got... uh, just uh, asking about this, uh, the positive credo thing. Um, right. During your tenure at Popular Science, did you uh, encounter kind of stories around the crisis in science and scientific publication? You know, the, the whole reproducibility and... Right, right. Replication and the rest of it. Fake data. Yeah, fake data and the rest of it. We did a little bit of that, and we certainly did... Yes, we did do a certain amount of that. We, however, we were not... We were more about how things work. One of our sort of internal mottos for, for how we were choosing our cover subjects, for instance, was hard, fast, and shiny objects. And popular science brought together this really sort of interesting cross-section of people. You know, we had people subscribing to that magazine um, who, you know, were holding these totally impossible concepts in their minds together simultaneously. We had people who believed that, you know, who believed in creation and, you know, would articulate to us in letters that the world was only a few thousand years old and simultaneously would, would exhibit this incredible command of um, nuclear power, let's say, or, you know, how a submarine works or something like that. And so the, the place was much more about the sort of the nuts and bolts of how things are made than it was about larger questions of discovery. And I tried, and I think to some extent we succeeded, to make it more about, you know, sort of an analysis of what science is and what it can do. And uh, we did stories about crime and we did stories about climate. That became a really huge subject for us. But, you know, it was fundamentally a positive spin because in the very competitive world of magazine publishing, you need a specific thing that you do differently from everybody else. And so being positive about science and technology was our spin in my time there. And so, so yeah, it was funny, you know, and, and so what the reason I, I mentioned then moving to Al Jazeera was going off and doing that involved for me a big a sort of shift in how I thought about my topics because Al Jazeera is all about inequality and social justice and, you know, who is being ghettoized in the world. And the science angle on that is a very different thing than what popular science was about. And so suddenly I was no longer, you know, we were no longer doing any kind of consumer technology stories. They didn't care about the latest iPhone. They wanted to know, you know, what is this going to mean for people who can't afford it? Or what is this going to mean for privacy? And so suddenly I was sort of, I had my worldview kind of challenged by that uh, in a way that I actually found that I really took to quite naturally. And I kind of discovered in myself an appetite for sort of a critique of science and replicability, like you describe, and, and uh, technology for its own sake, and all of these things, you know, and I, I really underwent this kind of transformation. And Al Jazeera America, unfortunately, folded up in 2016. Uh, they, they decided to shut it down. And I continue to work for Al Jazeera English now. But right, so are you, uh, is that print or on camera? So on camera, yeah, this was also me sort of learning a whole new set of skills of standing in front of a camera and, and you know, finding people who are going to provide a really good visual way of telling a story rather than just being able to describe the nuts and bolts. So very new and really fun uh, set of skills there. So when Al Jazeera America shut down, I was brought into a documentary series, a four-hour documentary series called Hacking Your Mind that's supposed to air, uh, we think, in 2019. We're not sure yet, but um, we're waiting to find out. But 
It's a National Science Foundation funded show produced by Oregon Public Broadcasting for hopefully public television, although it's not clear where exactly it's going to go yet. But the, the theme of that show, Hacking Your Mind, is explaining the world of cognitive illusions, of bias, uh, and the shortcuts that the human brain makes, because evolution taught us to make these shortcuts, and how those shortcuts get us into trouble in the modern world. And so I went from this very positive take on science, at popular science, to a critical view of it at Al Jazeera, to then this totally mind-expanding experience of, of doing it's almost three years now on the subject of how human beings perceive and often misperceive the world around them doing this show. And I had been going around and talking to companies and groups and stuff about... Jake, is this uh, basically... So the hacking the mind, is it a lot of it? Is it the, the behavioral economics? It is, yeah. It's basically a crash course for people like me who didn't know anything about it in behavioral economics in um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work uh, uh, that, you know, sort of explained that there is this kind of systematic way that human beings make decisions, heuristics, right, is the short term for it, and that there is this really quite quantifiable set of principles that, that you and I and pretty much everyone on Earth seems to use in making decisions as efficiently as possible. And those... And more recently, I, yeah. from what I understand, uh, policymakers have uh, started looking into it, right? So like setting right. up setting up nudge units. and uh... Exactly, the nudge units. So we, we went all around the world. We went to England. We went to uh, Tanzania, to all these different places that where we could see the that human programming at work and then see the ways that system human systems are beginning to, in, you know, sort of uh, incorporate them. So, yeah, political uh, campaigns are beginning to use them. Marketers, obviously, are using them like crazy. Some social service agencies, you know, all kinds, all kinds of people are, are trying to use them to, you know, either, I mean, in the best case scenario, you know, to do good and to make people, let's say, uh, no longer get incarcerated for a violent crime in England. There's a whole unit set up for that. People working on addiction using these principles, you know, it's a total revolution. But of course, there are also a lot of people misusing this stuff in order to sell people on a political candidate or to sell people insurance maybe even uh, if you had like the right uh, objective and goal maybe you can go overboard right so well that's right that's right and maybe this is uh, how you got into the whole ai thing is maybe exactly. maybe people are over automating or or maybe not over automating automating in a way that's not transparent that's right that's exactly right so so that is exactly what led me to ai is in the bay area where i live you know, and and in my travels around the world, I would bump into people working on AI or incorporating AI into various systems, whether they be corporate systems or research systems or whatever it was. And they would say things like, oh, yeah, we're just basing this on, you know, the principles of human cognition. Or they'd say they were doing it and they didn't know anything about how human beings make decisions, but it doesn't matter anyway. And And I began to realize that there was this disconnect between what is a totally revolutionary set of innovations coming through in psychology right now that are really just beginning to scratch the surface of how human beings make decisions. And at the same time, we are beginning to automate human decision-making in this really fundamental way. And so I had a number of different people just sort of say, wow, what you're describing in psychology really reminds me of this piece of, of AI that I'm building right now to you know, change how uh, expectant mothers see their doctors or 
uh, change how we hire somebody for a job or whatever it is. And yet there was no formal connection between those two things. And I suddenly realized, wow, there is a really serious disconnect going on between people who really don't know anything about how humans make decisions and yet are about to automate a huge swath of human decision making in ways that are going to change society forever. Yeah, and I think at a very, very high level, at the risk of overgeneralizing, I think there's two main things that people are beginning to talk about, right? So one is uh, transparency. Right. And then the other one is fairness. That's right. So the, the theme, uh, the, the title of the book, the working title of the book that I'm now writing on this subject, and this is what I'm doing at, as a fellow at Stanford for the next year, I'm writing a, a book for Hachette Book Group, which should come out in 2020. Um, and the book is called Black Box. And that is the phrase that kept leaping out at me in the, liter in the literature that was critiquing AI, because, and I think it has a couple of meanings. One, I like to think of our minds as a black box. We really have, you know, very little conscious understanding of what it is that our brains are doing 99% of the time. Our own brains are a black box to us. And there is a tendency right now in the development of AI to keep the data hidden, to keep it all inside a company typically. And that's creating these black box solutions that nobody gets to inspect. And so my great hope in writing a book about this and in talking about this as much as I can is to put a premium on the idea that we need to start thinking about it, about things as, a, you know, we need a glass box version of AI. We need AI that you can inspect, that you can peer review in some way, and really take a good look at before you begin trusting it to make decisions about your life or the life of other people. And there's actually, so there are a couple of things. Uh, first is uh, there's definitely uh, uh, data. Uh, data is, uh, is super important. To, for training some of these large models. And, and a lot of data is, is uh, hidden inside uh, large companies. But on the other hand, the, the large models are opaque, even if you had access to the data. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, right. You know, it, it turns out that the, actually the, the, the precise uh, mechanism for how some of these uh, extremely large uh, deep learning architectures work, uh, people are still in the process of understanding. That's right. That's right. I mean, I remember years ago, and this is when I was at Popular Science, I remember going, God, was this Popular Science? It might have even been earlier than Popular Science, but I remember going to a video game developer. I think it was the, the people who made Assassin's Creed. And if you've ever played that game, basically you're, you're chased across the rooftops all the time by these little you know characters, by these bad guys. And the game developer showing me the game, showing me the, the system that they had built said, wow, you know what's cool is that we these these bad guys will take routes and do things to get after you as the hero in this game that we never anticipated. You know, they'll do these creepy moves that we didn't even know about, you know, get up, do a back handspring up onto the roof in a way that we never knew they'd be able to do. And that was the first moment that I realized, like, wow, these things are really moving. You know, the, the algorithms are getting so good that their creators can't explain them, can't explain what's going on inside them. And from there, you know, and once once you get into other, you know, I mean, it's a video game is one thing, but you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day, right, who who uh, was trying to uh, build a loan company that would um, uh, that was using machine learning to to present loans to people, and he and his company did everything they possibly could to keep, uh, you know, to to not redline the people that they were loaning to. They were trying very hard not to. Uh, uh, make unfair loans that would, pr you know, give preference to white people over people of color. 
And they went to extraordinary lengths to, to make that happen. They, they cut addresses out of the process. Um, they did, you know, all of this stuff to try to basically neutralize the process. And, and they still, the, the, the ML still would pick white people at this disproportionate rate over everybody else. And they can't explain why, you know, they don't know why that is. It's, there's some variable that's mapping to race that they just don't know about, you know. But that sort of opacity, you know, and this is somebody explaining it to me who, who just happened to have been inside the company, but it's not as if that's on display for everybody to check out, you know. These kinds of, of closed systems are picking up patterns we can't explain and that their creators can't explain and are making, are making really, really important decisions based on them in ways that, that I just think, you know, it's going to be very important to sort of change how we inspect this stuff before we, we get in trust in it. So I'm actually uh, beginning to come around to the notion of an umbrella term for all of these things, uh, which is risk management, which uh, uh, hat tip to the future of privacy forum, because uh, uh, that's where I first encountered this term. So basically, if you think about a machine learning model, you build it and then you deploy it to production in the wild. So it uh, many things can happen, right? So it can start degrade, it can start to underperform, it can start to exhibit bias, it can uh, start leaking private information, right? Right? It can get attacked by an adversary. So each of those you can start thinking of as a risk. So you can uh, imagine uh, in the future companies having uh, teams dedicated to managing risk for machine learning models. And one of the things that actually uh, I think will start to happen, Jake, is that you might have a team who builds the model and then kind of a separate team, which also has data scientists, right? So AI experts who will audit the model, right? So kind of a, kind of a tag team of uh, two d different uh, teams so that uh, one team is independent of the other. Right, right. I think I, I like that idea. I think that my concern is that as these technologies become cheaper and cheaper and easier and easier for companies to implement, you're not going to have a company big enough or, I, I will say frankly, ethical enough to build what you're describing. And instead, and instead you could get very quickly to a place where I think, you know, already you see in, you know, in military contracting and in all kinds of areas of, of industry, you see small fly-by-night operations offering way more than they can deliver and people eager to automate things buying it. That's you know? true. But although I, I will say, I will uh, push back slightly in, in a couple of ways. One is, I think we will get to a point where there will be millions and millions of models out in production. So uh, as I wrote in a post earlier this year, we will need machine learning to monitor machine learning. <laughs> you know, So you will need some tools to automate the monitoring of some of these risks. And then the second data point is, I don't know if you're aware, but at least in the U.S., this coming generation of computer scientists are very interested in these topics, ethics. So there are now over 180 classes on ethics in computer science departments across the right. U.S. So there's some, hopeful, there's some hopeful signs. It's true. It is a hopeful sign. I really hope that that continues to be the case. I worry a little bit about depending on the sort of intellectual fashion for things like ethics coming and going, because I think that the, you know, 
when you go and you see, you know, w- when you see people whose job it is to make money, well, well, here, incorporating incorporating ethics well, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But there's here's but where it's here's tough where, where that, when that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Here's where you have to factor in the other stakeholders, right? So you have users, and users are beginning to become more aware about privacy and control and transparency. You have the data professionals who who are starting to become more interested and starting to talk about these topics of ethics and privacy and security. You have companies, and some of them are starting to signal that maybe uh, it can be a competitive advantage to behave wisely, right? So Apple, for example, makes a point of signaling that they don't uh, monetize data. All their analytics use privacy-preserving techniques. Right. And then there's the regulators, right? So not just Europe and GDPR. Now you have the California Privacy Act. I think uh, uh, Australia has uh, improved their privacy protection. So I think there's a bunch of things happening uh, across the different stakeholders. On the other hand, uh, I'm with you in the sense that uh, I think part of the part of my fear is just for volume, the sh- the sheer volume of uh, of these models that will get deployed in production. That's why I think actually. I, I really do think that we need machine learning tools to help us monitor machine learning. That's an interesting concept. I need to look more into that because I don't know enough about what that would look like. I mean, you know, the, the one of the ways that I've been trying to sort of describe my interest in this book is there's the point where the data goes wrong, right? The data either amplifies some sort of bias that's floating through society or, you know, some variable gets mapped the wrong way. Or, or the person building the model didn't... Uh... Uh, actually uh, include the bias and and kind of uh, inspect the underlying distribution of the, tra- right. of the training right. data. Or thinks that excluding some variable is going to mean that you no longer discriminate against it, when in fact it turns out you, you probably have to, to code to, to compensate for that rather than ignore it. You know, there's sort of mechanical things that I think are, are definitely going to need to be part of the process of building these systems that, are, that we're going to need to incorporate. The other part of it that I'm also trying to look at in this book is the way that human beings respond to being given an answer by an automated system. And there are some very well-established psychological principles out there that can give us some sense of how people are going to respond when they are, are told what to do based you know, on an algorithm. So the people who study anthropomorphism, right, the, the sort of imparting of uh, intention and human attributes to an automated system say that there's this really well established pattern in that when people are are shown a, a very complex system and given in some sort of exposure to that complex system, whether it gives them an answer or whatever it is, it tends to produce in human beings a, a level of trust in that system that doesn't really have anything to do with with you know reality. They just basically, the more complex the system, the more people tend to trust it. And so for me, I'm seeing these instances and I'm trying to sort of document these instances in which people, it's not so much what the, you know, the answer that the algorithm kicks out as much as the way that that answer gets sort of grabbed onto by humans. Somebody just the other day was pointing out to me, for instance, that Peter Dow, the guy who got pulled off the United flight, he got bumped off the flight and then was... Uh, you know, was beaten up by a couple of security guys when he when he refused to give up his seat. That guy's name was pulled out of the system, kicked out his name. You know, the computer said, this guy, 
kick him out, you know, and maybe it was because he paid the cheapest for his fare or booked it last or who knows what the variables were that caused it to kick it out. But when those two humans, those security guys were given the name by the computer, they went to these outrageous lengths to get him off the plane. They didn't stop and go, is this really a good idea? Should we really grab this guy? You know, like, are we sure this is the guy? You know, there's no questioning it. They just say, computer says you got to go, you got to go. And you can see that pattern echoed all sort of in all these different industries that if a piece of ML or a piece of AI kicks out an answer, for whatever reason, the human brain goes, I'm not qualified to, to question that answer. I'm just going to go for it. And that's a power that I think we haven't really inspected well yet, much less begun to compensate for. A couple of things. So first is, uh, I think that everything you said is true, right? So I think uh, there's a bias towards trust, trusting the black box inordinately, right? So, right. But on the other hand, arguably, I think at scale, black boxes, if built properly, can probably make decent decisions, actually probably better than humans, right? So, but then the question is how does, uh, because when we deploy these systems, ideally, the ideal scenario, at least at least in the short term, is you have human in the loop. So then uh, you still need to educate the humans how to process this information somehow, mm -hmm. right? That's right. And there's no training about that. I mean, we barely, we struggle in this country to even, you know, teach media literacy, right? People still can't tell the difference between, you know, what's real and what's not in media. Sometimes the media itself can't tell the difference between it, you know? And so once people start then kicking out answers on, uh, you know, things like, you know, I never question, you know, whether... Uh, Google Maps or Waze is telling me the right way to go, you know, why would I question it when it says, yeah, you should hire this guy rather than this guy or whatever else it is, you know? And so I agree. I, I think you're right. There isn't a training module for, um, you know, how we learn this stuff well. You know, there's the famous story about uh, um, uh, Joseph Weizenbaum, the, he's one of the sort of fathers of, of the whole idea of a chat bot. And he created this thing, Eliza, back in the 60s. It was basically a system you could type a little, uh, you could type a conversation with this thing into a typewriter and it would kick back what it turned out were pre-scripted uh, responses. And, um, and he basically wrote this incredible sort of decision tree script that would just kick out responses to you. And, and he dressed it up as a Rogerian psychologist, uh, a therapist, a psychotherapist that would, that would echo your responses back at you. So you'd say, Oh, my brother's driving me crazy. And then you'd, and they would say, why do you think your brother's driving you crazy? I don't know. Sometimes you remind me of him. Why do you think it reminds me of, you know, why do you think I remind you of him? You know, and, and people would just go deep with this thing. You know, his secretary famously would ask to be left alone with it. She wouldn't do the interactions with the chatbot unless he was out of the room. You know, people had developed these like deep personal connections to this total, you know, sort of parlor trick. And, and Weizenbaum writing about it, basically, you know, he, he pretty soon he was getting phone calls from the American Psychological Association. Um, people were predicting the end of psychotherapy and that it would be robots, you know, giving psychotherapy from now on. Carl Sagan said that, you know, people just went hard at his thing. And he and he he basically abandoned the field. He gave up. He said, you know, I think people are, are too prone to falling in love with these systems and I'm done. And he walked away and became an environmentalist for the rest of his life. Uh, was an environmental activist for the for the next several decades. So, you know, I think there's this, there's the the thing that we have not looked at is how will humans respond to being told what to do in these cases? You know, I, I don't worry about, at least I'm not qualified to worry about whether or not an AI system is going to, you know, 
whether the singularity is going to happen and we're going to be enslaved by some kind of robot brain. What I am worried about is that we are going to have the wrong parts of our own brains sort of either over-empowered or under-empowered by interactions with automated systems. And it's going to cause us to sort of give up some really important critical faculties. Yeah, and I think actually uh, that's why I think the bringing in the other stakeholders, so for example, regulators, right? So mm-hmm. when it comes to public policy applications, you want to be able to audit these applications. That's right. And figure out when, uh, when something happens and it goes wrong, you want to be able to go back to the almost like the airline flight recorder, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So right. Which, which black boxes. Yeah, which actually means you might have to save everything. You have to save the training data, you know, and go back to first principles and, and figure out what, what, what went wrong in order you, for you to do better. And then the other thing, I think in many ways for the mission critical applications, the ones that are really life and death kind of uh, things, uh, you really need to have better understanding of the limitations of what you're deploying, right? So That's right. So in quantitative terms, maybe you need error bars before you need, you don't need a single point. You need, okay, so what's the range of things that can happen, right? So. Before I before I put this on a plane and let it fly a plane with several hundred passengers, right? Right, that's right, that's right. And people, you know, the 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 trend seems to be so far that you know when it comes to really well defined narrow use cases, things like you know uh, diagnosis or uh, inspecting an underwater bridge or you know a, a bridge the pylons of a bridge underwater or you know, anything like that, then, the, then these automated systems tend to do a great job of that kind of thing. They can really improve on what humans can do. It's where we start to hand more kind of morally squishy stuff to it. You know, which person should I hire? Which person here is a lone risk? Which person, you know, is a threat? Those kinds of systems, I think there's a real hunger for them because they do things that humans are uncomfortable with. But I think that we don't know yet how good they are at that. And we don't know, and this is really the point of the book, we really don't know yet how human beings are going to respond to being told what to do in those kinds of morally questionable situations by a system that their brain is programmed to trust. Let's uh, tie this to something concrete and something close to your heart, Sure. which is the media industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so now, you know, for most people, the way they consume media is through a news feed. Mm-hmm. And that right. the news feed is not, in many cases, it's not a chronological news feed. It's an AI-powered news feed. So an, right. a, an AI system ranks and selects what you're going to see. And, and uh, many people have heard about the rise of uh, uh, fake news and the sure. and Russian attack on Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I think uh, there's actually two elements to this fake news, right? So one is the generation. So how do you generate the realistic-looking video, realistic-looking uh, uh, images? Sure. And uh, kind of realistic uh, text. And then the other element is the whole information propagation. So how, how do you make sure you see this and uh, you use bots to uh, ensure virality of this fake piece of content? So on, on the fake media side, I think, uh, as far as the arms race, the black hats are way ahead. It's very hard to... The media forensics for generating fake video and fake images is uh, way behind. 
That's right. Although although DARPA has a massive program right now to fund projects uh, to bring things up to a level. But uh, one of the things that I, so by the way, so uh, I've been drilling deep into this topic because I find it fascinating. So one of the things I've learned, Jake, is that it turns out that humans have uh, are very poor at discerning fake and false information. Oh yeah, no, that's right. I mean. So, so if you're familiar with the work of Kahneman and Tversky, right, they, they were the first people to sort of come up with this whole idea that, you know, they really explored concepts like confirmation bias um, and the degree to which we sort of, we, we um, make these kind of irrational uh, snap judgments about information, especially when we don't have enough information or we don't have enough time. That under pressure and, and with enough uncertainty, we just jump to these certain things. And they inspired this whole generation of researchers among them, a guy named Paul Slovic, who created this incredible body of work around um, what he called the affect heuristic. And basically what he was identifying was the role that emotions tend to play in, in the way that we make decisions. turns out that if you're trying to keep a species alive for, for you know, 70,000 years or whatever it's been, one of the best ways you can do it is to not have them use their conscious reasoning faculties to make decisions for them, because that takes too long. If a snake comes into the room and you got to sit there and go, hey, what kind of snake is that? I wonder if it's poisonous. It bites you and you die. Instead, you need your gut to be like, oh my gosh, it's a snake. And you leap to your feet and you're out the door in an instant without even thinking about it, right? It's the use of our emotions to make decisions for us that has kept us alive all this time. Now, port that over to, the, to make it the very center of a new media business that is entirely about grabbing one's attention and, and selling that attention to advertisers. And you have this perfect system for keeping people enthralled um, by appealing to their emotions. You know, the use of our conscious reasoning uh, to discern truth from fiction is not only hard, it's not fun. <laughs> it doesn't feel good to do that. It takes time and energy. It's dull, right? And so, Nobody wants to sell you a process that's based on that. They want to sell you something that is based on the easiest, most satisfying thing that your consciousness or unconscious can do, and that is process something emotionally. And so for me, I am very, it's difficult. This is a difficult moment, I think, for human beings. Yeah, and, and the metric for, some, for many of these media properties, as you, as you uh, pointed out, is attention, which translates to time spent on the site. So, for example, I had uh, Guillaume Chalot, who was one of the uh, people who built the early recommenders at YouTube, who has since left. And he's been kind of uh, tracking YouTube through the 2016 elections and this year election. Just basically, so what he would do is he would play a video and then follow the recommender, right? So what he found is that uh, you get more and more extreme content <laughs> As as you keep clicking on the recommendations, because that's how they keep you on the site is to find out your emotions, grabbing your emotions, and then in the process, uh, they kind of accentuate the formation of these echo chambers, right? That's right. No, I mean for me, the first moment that I realized that we were sort of in that that media was in for a real problem, and this is especially true of of conventional media, right? People like me who worked in magazines and realized that we were totally unprepared for the way the world was changing, we at Popular Science began to notice that our comments were not only becoming more and more kind of counterproductive to the, uh, to the information that we were providing, 
people were beginning to, you know, there was a study that had come out uh, right around this time that said, that showed that people were confusing comments with the actual information in the article most of the time. And we realized, oh my gosh, the comment section beneath an article, uh, you know, is full of scientific inaccuracies. And people are walking away thinking that that stuff is true. And as a media property that, you know, we, I have a staff of like 25 and, you know, we're putting out uh, not only a monthly magazine and a bunch of other properties, you know, but daily content all day, every day. We had no way of controlling the comments. And this is going to, this is, I know this sounds dated because who thinks about comments anymore, but you know, uh, the, the, we had no way of patrolling the comments that were showing up uh, on the site or anywhere else. And so we decided to do away with comments. We just wiped them out because we just couldn't responsibly handle them in any other way. And I pretty soon I found myself, I was on NPR and BBC and all these places as one of the first major media enterprises to just cut comments out of the product. And they all said, why are you stifling free speech? And, you know, isn't science all about the free ex exchange of information? And, and I just explained, like, I don't think we can responsibly patrol these comments for, you know, the people who are specifically trolling to mess with, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to disagree about, I don't know, you know, the dangers of nuclear power on a site. It's another thing when you've got people writing comments saying, I mean, ridiculous stuff about how the uh, STDs will pass right through a condom because they're at this micron scale. I mean, people would sort of come up with this mumbo jumbo that would basically suggest to you that you shouldn't use a condom, you know, stuff like that, where you just go, well, why? I don't, I don't know how to do this. You know, now port that over to something like Facebook, where you're, you then also have this, these sort of mixed incentives where the company is based on the idea of getting as much attention as possible. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do. I think you're in a whole other world of misinformation. And so, yeah, I, I applaud DARPA and anybody else who can try and get on this problem. But I also feel like we've got to start teaching kids from the earliest days that a company that grabs you and your attention and sells it to other people cannot be trusted to tell you the truth every time because it's not the business they're in. Uh, and so that, that I think is going to have to be the kind of thing that we start teaching in grammar school to get people ready for the new world. Yeah. And, and maybe as, uh, as Guillaume Chalot pointed out to me, and maybe one of the things that people in the future may start asking from these companies is not just uh, control over their data, but some level of control over the algorithm, meaning uh, mm. I want to be able to tell the platform what uh, metric to optimize. So in, right, other, in other words, don't optimize for the time I spend on the site, but uh, optimize for teaching me something new or, that's right. that's or, good. or making that's me good. happy. Right. So, well, th that's right. And, you know, um, Daniel Kahneman, when he won the Nobel Prize for economics, he, he then began announcing, he announced that he was going to begin thinking about this idea of system one and system two, which is the basis of his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And the whole concept there is that, you know, there's this there's this part of our brain, system one, that is the fast thinking brain that makes most of our decisions for us that we share with prim other primates. And, you know, it's our it's our instinctive, automatic decision making system. And it is the emotionally driven system that Facebook grabs. Right. And that all these sort of media properties grab at system two is your slow thinking brain that costs you a lot of calories and, and resource, you know, mental resources, because it's your creative side, your cautious side, your logical side. I would love it if when I went to a site like Facebook, they said to me, you know, use the service, any of these, they said to me, would you rather have the system one experience where we just grab your emotions and mess with you all day? Or would you rather have system two where we challenge you to think things through properly? You know, if you could 
give me that choice, I would feel so much more trusting of an entity like that. Um, but that's not the business they're in. They want to, you know, this is this is what advertising, media, and increasingly politics is all about, is just grabbing at your emotions in a way that you don't have any conscious control over and aren't even aware is is happening to you. And that's one, uh, one of the discouraging things for me is that uh, uh, we're in an era where we don't have a, a baseline set of facts. So, for example, you were editor-in-chief of a science publication. I'm sure you were constantly battling all sorts of conspiracy and cookie cookie ideas right so so there's that and then also actually the because the way the platforms are architected as i said there's that other aspect which is the uh, we have to fight not just the fake generation of media but also the uh, information propagation and there you're you're now looking at nation state actors <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know That's what right. I mean with the uh, with the uh, resources to to really uh, not just uh, build sophisticated bots, but even have armies of human uh, trolls. Right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and it's so cost effective. You know, it's like to to simply create division between people is so cost effective, and if you, and and you can just see this stuff being militarized. You know, the the there's this fascinating uh, paper that came out of this Polish think tank. Um, right after uh, the uh, right after Russia annexed Crimea, right, and, and came in, came in and invaded and took you know a big chunk of Ukraine. There's a playbook that this Polish think tank identifies in this paper for reaching in, creating as much emotionally driven. Literally, they write things like you know you you grab onto the subjects that inspire the deepest emotional resonance and divide people among them. You know, using those. Um, and you can, you know, and that's your, how you're going to do this sort of asymmetric warfare and, and, uh, and fight off the West, you know, is basically what they were saying. And you read that playbook and you realize, wow, they were just, they were, it was like a rehearsal for what's going on now. Um, and, it, and you don't even have to be that sophisticated to do it. It just happens to be that our brain is an incredibly sophisticated instrument for processing emotional stuff. And we are just unaware that we're being controlled in that way. All you got to do is throw a few stupid, you know, slogans into the mix and we all start fighting with each other automatically. It's an incredibly efficient system for messing with people. All right. So let's close this podcast with a challenge to you, Jake, which is please help us close on a positive note, particularly on the media landscape. So any closing thoughts on uh, the media landscape over the next five years? Well, I think that the my great hope is that there will be a sort of, I think that there is the power of sort of intellectual fashion is very strong. And that I think very quickly, we're beginning to assemble a vocabulary and an understanding of ourselves that allows us to realize, oh, I'm being manipulated right now. Oh, this is a moment that, you know, where it's happening to me. I, I talked to my, I've got a, I've got two young daughters and we talk about it all the time. They you know, we, we talk about our brains and unconscious processes of our brains almost like they're a separate character from the conversation. So there's you and me and what we want, and then your brain and my brain are trying to do these other things. And I think that there is a way that we in the next five years are going to begin assembling a sort of cultural immunity to this kind of manipulation um, that I hope is going to become uh, sort of more and more fashionable, that it'll be cool to know yourself. If in writing this book and in doing this documentary and all the other projects I'm doing, 
if I can get off the ground some sense that it is cool to be acquainted with how vulnerable our brains are to manipulation, we're going to get somewhere there. And so for me, I have all kinds of plans for sort of curriculum about that, for uh, obviously this book, you know, the rest of it. I just, I just want to make it cool for us to understand our brains better and, and sort of future-proof them against manipulation. The other thing I'll just throw out there just for your listeners, uh, just because I would love this, is, you know, I'm in the process of writing a book about artificial intelligence that, you know, is, is I've, I've got a lot of really smart people talking to me. I've done over 100 interviews so far. Like, I'm, I'm on my way. But I could really use people who are working within companies deploying ML and AI systems for really powerful purposes. I would love to hear their perspective. I will speak to you on the record, off the record, as you like. But I'd love it if people came to me and said, hey, I've got I've noticed this pattern in how this is being deployed or I've noticed this pattern in how people respond to this stuff. Anything that will help me not just speculate about what companies are doing, but actually know um, that's what a responsible reporter does. So please come to me, talk to me about it. I'm easy to find. And I will make sure to highlight that in the post accompanying this podcast. Great. And thank you, Jake. And let's talk again once the book comes out. Ben, it's a pleasure. I really, really appreciate you having me on. It's been a very thoughtful conversation. Thank you. Thanks. You can follow Jacob Ward on Twitter at underscore Jacob Ward underscore. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.